Well, first, I wanted to thank my colleagues for the opportunity to serve as the House Republican Conference Chair. I have prioritized listening to all members of our Republican Conference, and my focus is on unity because that's what the American people and that's what our voters deserve. I also want to thank President Trump for his support. He is a critical part of our Republican team. I believe that voters determine the leader of the Republican Party, and President Trump is the leader that they look to. Uh, I support President Trump. Uh, voters support President Trump. He is an important voice in our Republican Party, and we look forward to working with him. That was New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik moments after being elected as the new chair of the House Republican Conference and making it clear that her allegiance to former President Donald Trump is solid and unwavering. Her comments came at the end of a wrenching week for House Republicans in which they deposed Liz Cheney as conference chair because she had stood up to Trump condemned his big lie about a stolen election, and made it clear she will do everything she could to keep him as far away from the Oval Office as possible. Not Stefanik. Once a widely praised moderate with an independent streak, she has become a prime example of the hold the former president still has over his party. We'll talk to a former member of Congress, Barbara Comstock, who was once close to Stefanik and who now wants nothing to do with Trump and his allies on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So, Stefanik, man, uh, I got to say, that uh, presser she had after uh, being elected as the House Republican Conference Chair was as in your face as uh, it could possibly be. She kept bringing up Trump. She must have mentioned him like eight or nine times in the course of a five-minute uh, press conference, just making it totally clear there's no daylight between her and the party she is now part of the leadership of and uh, the guy in Mar-a-Lago who a lot of us thought was uh, discredited and would fade away and who seems to be anything but at this point. Yeah, and this is from uh, the woman who backed John Kasich for president in 2016, who refused right. to endorse Donald Trump by name, who slammed Trump for the Hollywood access uh, tape. She voted uh, against Trump's 2017 tax law, backed all sorts of liberal legislation, including LGBTQ legislation, criticized the family separation policy at the border, you know, and she has just replaced uh, in Republican leadership a woman who uh, voted with Trump like 93 percent of the time. So it just goes to show that this is this is no longer uh, about ideology or policy at all. It is about one thing and one thing only, which is total allegiance and loyalty to Donald Trump. It is, you know, the party of Trump, as she pretty much said up there. Uh, what's amazing, too, isn't, isn't it, is that they're pledging loyalty to a, a man who lost the popular vote, who most of them outperformed in their own districts, including Stefanik. Um, in her own district in New York, who lost the House and lost the Senate, and yet he still has a vice grip over the party. But yeah, right. I will say, by the way, Victoria, that she is where her voters, where not necessarily all of her voters, but the Republican Party is on this subject, because we have a uh, Yahoo News YouGov poll that just came out today on Friday that uh, on, on this question of Liz Cheney, um, only 17 percent of Republicans said that they thought Liz Cheney should stay in her position uh, in, in the leadership. So um, politically, uh, right. this is where the party is right now. Yeah. Grassroots, but more than just the grassroots, clearly. And yet today, it seems, although it's still an evolving story, even as Liz Cheney was ousted, and even as a virulent Trump supporter was put in her place, there seems to be a deal that's been cut on establishing a commission to look into the January 6th attacks. So 
Stefanik, one of the first things on her plate in terms of messaging is going to be to deal once again with whether and to what extent Trump is culpable for the insurrection on January 6th. And so it's odd that the Republican leadership seems to have agreed to establishing the commission, even as they appointed a person who is going to have to, I suppose, attack any sort of thing that the commission might come out with. Does this deal have the support of uh, Kevin McCarthy and the Republican leadership? And that's why it's an evolving story, because earlier this morning, everyone was trumpeting the fact that there was a deal, that it was a 10-person commission with subpoena power that was going to investigate just the January 6th attack. And not too long after that, McCarthy began saying that he had questions and that maybe he hadn't actually approved this deal. Yeah, we'll, we, so, will, we will see. I, I yeah, always thought yeah. that that was what they should have done, what the Democrats should have done right away. They should have moved uh, legislation for that. And they should yeah. have, you know, divided it up equally between Democrats and Republicans. But, you know, if you can get a commission like this off the board and it will deal with not only the events of January 6th, but what led up to the events of January 6th and make it clear if you can get Republican buy-in that, you know, all the stop the steal stuff was completely bogus and in fact a big lie. I think that would go a long way to, um, addressing some of these diehard Trump supporters. Yeah, but, and, um, and yeah. you can bet that Liz Cheney will associate herself as closely with this commission as possible right. because you know, they're going to have subpoena power. They're going to have the patina of bipartisan uh, credibility. And um, they, I think, are going to make a lot of news. There, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know yet that they will find out. And that will be an important platform for Liz Cheney because she pushed hard for it uh, from the very beginning. Right. Well, look, you said uh, uh, Stefanik's election uh, as conference chair is a sign of that the, this is still totally the party of Donald Trump, but not all Republicans are in that camp. Some uh, do uh, stay with them. Um, uh, Liz Cheney and over a hundred of them signed this uh, letter for a new, uh, basically calling for a new political movement. And um, uh, these are Republicans, a call for American renewal. We've got one of them, Barbara Comstock, who, uh, you know, climate you and I have known for years uh, back in her days when she was one of the uh, congressional investigators targeting Bill Clinton. Uh, she then was uh, went on to be the uh, uh, chief of public affairs at the Justice Department under John Affleck. From operatives to stateswoman. Yeah. Right. As partisan as <laughs> you could get back in the days that we knew her. And now she has um, risen above that partisanship to denounce uh, Trump's hold on the party. And, um, you know, uh, she was once close to Stefanik, uh, now has very different thoughts about her. So um, a lot to talk about. Let's get to it. We now have with us Barbara Comstock, former congresswoman from Northern Virginia, former chief of public affairs for the Justice Department, former congressional aide, and uh, somebody who knows the players in this week's drama on Capitol Hill quite well. Uh, Barbara, welcome to Skullduggery. Good to be with you. So uh, we have all been following the uh, turmoil within the House Republican Party uh, this week, which you were, of course, uh, once a part of. Uh, they deposed Liz Cheney and installed somebody who you were once quite close with, Elise Stefanik. What's your uh, take on what your party has done here with deposing Liz Cheney and installing um, Elise Stefanik? Well, first of all, I'm, you know, I've, I've known Liz for, you know, over 20 years, and I'm just so proud of what she did. You know, I think it's really kind of a woman for all seasons moment, you know, very historic. Um, Liz understands that number three in the minority isn't even worth selling yourself for. And I do think the January 6th was very much a dividing line for people like Liz, like Adam Kinzinger, like the others who voted for impeachment, where... You know, in 2016, you know, I think, you know, I mean, I I was on the ballot. That was my first reelect for Congress. But I had already I had run three races in the state house, and then two in Congress. I had won by 16 points in 2014 in a, you know, in a swing 
district. And you know, so I'm on the ballot with Donald Trump, who I had not supported. I had been a Marco Rubio co-chair. And when the Access Hollywood tape came out at that point, I had not said whether I would vote for him or not. And I said, I'm out. You know, I, I can't go there. That's not a line I can cross. I do a lot with women and leadership. I have a young woman's leadership program. I have a daughter. You know, I couldn't face any of those if I supported him. So, you know, I went out publicly and said that. And then I had to, you know, run for three weeks, you know, figuring, hey, I'll probably lose. Trump will lose. Well, then we both won. You know, and then you're stuck with him. And, and I think most people did think he was. And actually, I outran him by 12 points in my district. So, so I don't fault anybody at that point for not going the direction I went. It's a binary choice. They didn't want to support Hillary. I wrote in. <laughs> I didn't support Who, him. Who'd you write in? I, I wrote in Marco at that this point. In 2020, I wrote in Abigail Adams, remember the last. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but during the time Trump won and I was in there, like everybody else, you know, we had a Republican majority. Now you're trying to work on, let's try and get things done that we all care about. And I think everyone had a way of managing Donald Trump. Certainly in that first term, Elise, probably if you went back and looked through our tweets, we probably were all saying similar things. You know, this is not acceptable. You know, whether it was the, you know, the misogynist comments or Charlottesville or, you know, any number of things, you know, that we were, it, it was pretty awful. You know, when they brought Steve Bannon in the White House, it was like, he should not be in the White House. He should not get a national security clearance. So we were all kind of on the same page. She headed up the Tuesday group, which is a moderate group. And I was part of that because I my district had a lot of issues like federal employees not shutting down the government, things that the Tuesday group were working on. So we were, you know, pretty much all on the same page. Liz Cheney, being from Wyoming, was probably voting more conservatively than either myself or Elise. So it really was after the 2018 election where you had those 40 mod, you know, moderate districts, swing districts that got wiped out because of Trump. I mean, our whole election was, you know, people kind of <laughs> saying to us on election day, hey, nothing against you. You've done a great job. I got to vote against Trump. <laughs> and I was like, I get it. I get it. <laughs> and thanks to, you know, the Democrats then getting control, you had impeachment. So that and then, so all along at these different points. I think people, all Republicans were trying to figure out how do you deal with Trump when you want to get things done for your constituents? Certainly, you know, I didn't want him to shut down the government. Whenever he did, I was part of the coalition that voted to keep it open. Then he signed that bill. Then I got accused of being a Trump supporter because the bill to keep the government open was signed by Trump. <laughs> you know, so that was always a bizarre uh, kind of situation. And then in even 2020, I get it. Again, it's a binary choice. But by that point, I think you had more Republicans who left and you saw people Republicans underneath Trump do better. That's why we gained seats. I worked last year, I worked to get more women and minorities elected and all of that. But then January 6th came. And to me, that's where, okay, I understand if you're kind of trying to figure out before that how to deal with Trump. But once January 6th came, and even the, and obviously the lead up to it and the big lie. It's it's unacceptable. And the Senate took a very different tack. None of their leadership were in on that whole big lie scam. And certainly they were very unhappy with Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. But to see Elise and House leadership go that whole thing, that was a dividing line for Liz and I think for a lot of other conservatives. And that's why Trump's numbers are down now. How do you explain Stefanik? You were close to her. She was a moderate. She led the Tuesday group. You were at her wedding shower a few years ago. You guys were close. How do you explain how she went from a mainstream moderate Republican to where she is right now? Well, you know, I under, I know her district went more Trump. And that's, you know, because she's upstate New York. She's in one of those districts that I would imagine probably has shrunk, not grown. So redistricting will be interesting because New York's losing a district. So I think her district being a working class district went Trumpy. And that's where I understand, okay, your district is Trumpy or you feel like you have to support him for the election. But after that, then it's, this is the constitution. And no matter, this isn't partisan. This is, you have to, when you lose, you, you, you go and that's over with. And that's where, to me, 
I, I just don't get it. No, I can't explain her. I've had friends of hers over that people I know I met with her say, thank you for what you're saying out there. And, and I think that the really ugly part of it too is the attitude of the caucus, like, oh, we can depose one woman and we'll just replace her with another. Like, you know, this is a skirt is interchangeable and oh, we'll get a woman to introduce the resolution to do that. So that kind of cynicism is sexist in its own right. And certainly all Liz was doing was saying the same things as a bunch of conservative Federalist Society judges said, what Bill Barr said, what Lindsey Graham on January 6th said, I'm out, can't can't keep up the big lie. Um, you know, what Mitch McConnell said, but for a woman to say it and for a woman with, you know, strength and backbone to stand up and say it, I think made a lot of the um, guys uncomfortable. And so now they want a woman who just stands next to them as Elise did this morning and just every other word out of her mouth was Donald Trump. And it's, it's just a remarkable transformation. And I, you know, our party isn't about Trump. You know, you can't, the guy who got 46.9% and has now lost even more since election day, that's, you know, do the math. I mean, the stupidity of just basic math here is not, you're not going to get Trump to get you back into the White House. And I think it's going to have to be a Republican who can cross over what is going to be a very difficult divide within the party. So I don't know who that is. You know, it's probably not going to be people squarely in one camp or the other. It's maybe a governor who can kind of, you know, bridge this and say, let's move on. So, so no, I, I can't explain it in any sensible way. Because well, let me let, let me just actually follow up. You talked about the transformation. Um, and, and I don't know if you're talking about Stefanik's transformation or the transformation of the party, but she certainly does know how to pick her moments because – when most people who follow politics heard anything about Elise Stefanik, it was uh, during Trump's first impeachment yeah. when all of a sudden uh, she was out there uh, as his most ardent and in some ways effective public advocate. And it struck a lot of people and people said it and wrote it at the time that this was her early bid for leadership and that this was a this was opportunistic. Um, do you see it that way? Yeah, I mean, there's not, I mean, there was a real contrast between somebody like Will Hurd, who was on this committee, who I think still has a great future in the Republican Party of the future. <laughs> he he didn't vote for impeachment, but he didn't go all in and stand there with Jim Jordan. And I remember talking to Will at that time, and I said, you know, because I mean, I was for impeachment, you know, but he said, you know, when Adam Schiff turned the, everybody off so much that. You know, even Will Hurd didn't want to go there. So even with that, I, I, you know, it was jarring to see Elise stand next to Jim Jordan, because I certainly remembered meetings where we were in with Paul Ryan, you know, where the women would come in or, or even with John Boehner before that, where we'd come in and we'd be like, OK, these Freedom Caucus guys are wagging the dot. You know, the t- they're, they're just screwing up the caucus. And, you know, they're they're not honest people to deal with. I mean, Jim Jordan doesn't pass legislation. He never has. (laughs) And it was very frustrating. And so she was certainly part of that party. So when she was standing next to Jim Jordan and kind of being, you know, and it was clear then, okay, they need a woman do that. You know I mean? And that's all, you know, I mean, I worked on sexual harassment legislation, but I was on the committee. I felt very strongly about it. I had a record on those things. I had called out Bill Clinton and Donald Trump on it. I called out Democrats and Republicans. You know, I was out there, you know, as a woman in the party talking about that. But I also felt it was genuinely where I was at and what I wanted to do. And, you know, there weren't a lot of guys who wanted to go out and talk about it. But this was different. But January 6th was so different. And that's where, to me, where sort of crosses all the lines of how can you keep putting out this big lie? Things like, you know, the Georgia case where she was saying there was 140 images, she printed and put out, she even went beyond what some of the other Republicans said about that county, basically alleging that one out of four votes was illegal, which Republican officials in Georgia who just got the crap beaten out of them for, for being honest, said is absurd and actually ludicrous was the word they used. And even just this past week, she's standing by it. And I think, you know, to 
really see the full descent is the first thing she did after it was clear that they were going to depose Liz is she goes on the indicted pardon Steve Bannon show. Like, I mean, Trump endorsed her. You really need to grovel to Steve Bannon or to grovel I think she went on Seth Gorka's Seth show, Gorka. too. <laughs> and, and, and these, these are people I can assure you that we were all rolling our eyes at together. There was no like, boy, that's Steve Bannon. What a what a great guy he is. You know, they were embarrassments then. They're embarrassments now. And hitching our wagon to the Seb Gorka, Steve Bannon, Matt Gates, Marjorie Green mess is crazy. But this did start before January 6th because I think she was one of the few. I don't know how many women gave money to Marjorie Green, but I, I mean, maybe check it. I, I think she did. And ironically, then Marjorie Green was, you know, saying she wasn't sure about her. But um, Matt Gates endorsed her. But also, um, I, you know, I'm on the board of ViewPAC and Winning for Women that we were all supported by. And ViewPAC, we actually actively opposed Marjorie Green and um, didn't give them money, uh, supported her male opponent, which is something usually women's groups don't do. <laughs> we're trying to get Republican women elected. But in this case, we realized what a colossal embarrassment people like her and Lauren Boebert our view pack didn't give to either of those women. And I was part of that board decision to say, let's, we, we knew, I mean, their, their public records were clear. They were nightmares, but this is the clown car show that the house is attached them to. Now in the Senate, it's very different. The Senate, they're different. They aren't, they, they don't want Eric Greitens in Missouri. I can assure you, they don't want these clown cars coming in and doing the whole Todd Aiken, Richard Murdoch, Christine O'Donnell, I'm not a witch thing. But so let me let me let, all in on that. Let me, let me break in and ask a, a quick question about the we've we've talked a lot about the personalities, but let's talk if we can about the future of the Republican Party. So this week you joined a coalition of more than a hundred, you know, really significant Republican luminaries, everything from, you know, Christy Todd Whitman to Bob Inglis to Charlie, you know, Charlie Dent, um, in this uh, I guess a call for American renewal. And in it, you seem to be saying, we're not going to stick with the Republican Party forever. You know, that it's like we will not wait forever. And I guess my question is, how long will you wait? Are you, are you guys really serious about stepping out and creating a, a rival party, breaking off from the Republican well, Party? Well, the, the party is a diverse group because we're actually allowing diverse views on these things. What we're united on is the big lie and Donald Trump is destructive to the democratic process. And the principles really outline this basic constitutional government, center-right coalition type things. We don't have any litmus tests on issues other than, you know, kind of fealty to constitutional democratic government, accepting when you lose. <laughs> and I am in the camp of let's improve the Republican Party because I do think this will burn out. I would like it to burn out sooner rather than later. I would like it to burn out by having good candidates who don't go the whole hog Trump way and find, you know, a way to win a nomination and win an election. But it may have to go the way of, you know, people who, you know, if Trump comes in like he did in in Kansas and supports a Chris Kobach, then we lose the seat. They, we picked the wrong candidate. So, so, so at least for you, for your part, you could never anticipate leaving the Republican Party or forming a, a rival or a breakaway portion of it. Or well, is I, that? I feel like, like in Virginia, you know, the candidate who just got nominated for governor is a friend of mine. I think he. Yeah, and he's a Trump the, supporter. Well, he if you look at his record, I don't think he donated to him. Maybe I'm not sure. Well, whatever. He was one of the least Trumpy people on the ballot. Let me. I should, and I think he's genuinely in terms of, you know, on the economy, on uh, just being a plain, decent person and wanting to. I mean, I know already people who are independents, Democrats supporting him because he and his wife are very active in the community. They are, they are just good, decent people. And I think he will actually be quite a contrast to, you know, Terry, who's, I mean, you guys all know Terry and his, you know, what is it? Yes, we do. So, Terry McAuliffe, right, you were talking yeah, and, about. And, yeah, and then we have an attorney general who decided a candidate who didn't go Trumpy and had a very Trumpy person opposing him. And it was a close race. And I'm very, you know, Jason Myers, a Cuban-American down in Virginia Beach. He's been in the state house. 
I think he's the kind of candidate I'd like to support I'm supporting, but I'm picking and choosing candidates who I don't think are going over the edge because I want them to restore and reform the party. I'm not going to support every Republican, but what I'm trying to do instead is find the Republicans that I think are the future of the party. Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, if he runs for Senate, he's the most popular guy up there, double digits ran ahead of Trump. He stayed out of all this mess. He's a great conservative and I'm very comfortable supporting him. So those are the kind of people I'm trying to find, people who aren't, you know, kneeling to Trump. You say you say you think that this is going to burn out. But if anything, the events of this week kind of sort sort of seems to indicate that the flame is burning higher and hotter than ever before. So, you know, what's going to make it burn out? Well, I mean, that is I mean, the House is very close. And so if this works for 20, I mean, one of the things they're pitching is, hey, let's win the House and then Trump will run again. So two things can happen there. They win the House. Trump and they and they learn the wrong lesson. Trump runs, we lose. So we lose the White House in 2024. I don't see a prospect where Trump ever wins again. So I'm very comfortable that that will he will never be president and that won't be a situation. But in the meantime, the people that we can get in there in 2022, if some of them are better than the Trumpites and move away and all of that then that's going to be better for the long-term party. So I think I think it's, you know, I think the Adam Kinzinger, Chris Sununu, you know, people, uh, you know, Larry Hogan. I mean, look at some of our most popular governors are people who aren't big Trump supporters. I mean, Mike DeWine now has a primary opponent supported by the, you know, Brad Parscal is working for him. He's like, and if you have to have an opponent, Having a loser like Brad Parscale, who can't run a race even with you know tons of money, then you know that's about as good as you can get. So it's piece by piece, find the decent candidates. But I don't think Trumpism has a long-term shelf life. It's sore loserism, it's grievance politics, it's grievance, it's you know, appealing to people's basis things. And and elections are about the future, not past grievances. And the candidates who understand that and stand on their own and put forward their own mission and their own vision for the country, I think will prevail. So is there a role for your friend Liz Cheney in this mix? And if so, what is that? Well, I think she is out talking about the big lie. And that is going to be something a columnist, Henry Olson, who's very conservative, talked about how important it is to explain things like that Georgia case that Elise has falsely talked about talking about what's going on in Arizona, De, you know, debunking with very easily provable facts all of these nonsensical election fraud myths that are out there. And I can show you, you know, the vote for Liz in February, which was two thirds, that represents the silent majority of members who know this is a lie and they don't want to have to talk about it. If Donald Trump, you know, went off on an island somewhere tomorrow, you would not have a majority of Republicans. And even in that caucus, wanting, I mean, they're scared of him right now. They're scared he'll come in and mess up a primary. Okay. I was really asking on a, on a national scale, because at the well, end of the day- She has a great national role to, to be yeah. out there speaking the truth to that center-right future Republican coalition that she will be part of building and will- Okay, but you need to, you need you need a leader, and you need a non-Trumpy presidential candidate. Um, so, who <laughs> would that be? Well, I think that I think that's going to be you're going to see what happens in 2022, and the people who come out of that, um, and, and and who sort of rises to the top and finds a way. You know, sometimes people have their moments and issues that arise that they are particularly able to address. So I can't say what those issues and moments will be, but I'm, that's what I'm looking for, somebody who can turn the page and be in a post-Trump, post-pandemic world, because that's that's the Republican Party that I'm focusing on and hope will reemerge. And I think that's what Liz is going to do. And I think that's what People like Larry Hogan or Chris Sununu, 
you know, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, but also some, you know, some of those are moderates, you know, I mean, you guys know me, I'm pretty conservative, you know, and, but I think it's, it's not conservative or moderate because as you see from how people vote, they don't even care about that anymore. It's just Trump loyalty. But just to, uh, back to Cheney for a minute, I hear what you're saying about the party that she wants it to be and that she is positioning herself for that Republican Party. But that's not the party uh, as, as it is right now. And so I that's guess that's not the House. That's not that's the not, House. All right. It's not the, ha- it's not, the certainly not the House. And so I, I guess my question is just tactically, you know, she's now set herself up uh, to really have a single message here. Um, and the only thing that anyone's going to want to talk to her about for the near future is, is January 6th, the big lie, Donald Trump, the future of, you know, the Republican Party. Um, and, you know, moreover, to reach the grassroots of the party, you know, she's going to have to have a different message. She's going to have to, you know, get invited on to, you know, Newsmax and, and you know, part that the whole right wing uh, media ecosystem. How is she going to do that? And how is she going to get invited to Republican dinners? How is she going to be able to, you know, sort of maintain a platform and 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 a message beyond this one message. The, the danger is that she ends up, you know, like uh, Flake, right? You know, who's uh, who no one really talks about anymore. Um, so I just I just wonder tactically how she stays relevant. Well, I mean, she's somebody who's been engaged in politics and obviously with a family name that 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 does uh, get attention. And I. I I think she's, you know, taken that very seriously and that's why she's where she's at. So I think she can be, she's going to be part of that process and some of it's going to be winning and losing. You know, I mean, if these Trump endorsed people lose in some seats where they should win, I mean, if they don't win back the house in 2022 with this pretty easy layup, that's going to be a big problem. So we don't know what's going to happen right now because you don't know the, you know, the Trump, I mean, the Trump operation right now, this band of losers who are around him, they're out trying to get, you know, candidates, sign me up as a consultant. I'll run your race for you. You know, you look in Ohio and you've got Trump consultants in in three or four different camps, right? They're just trying to make money on this. And then they're all Trump whispers. Hey, I'll be able. I mean, I had a candidate call me who who said, um, you know, in a swing district and said, well, you know, this consultant said he could help me and uh, get me an endorsement from Trump and a fundraiser at Mar-a-Lago. And I said, yeah, that would be a ticket on the Titanic in your district. And did he tell you that Trump lost your district by double digits? And after redistricting, it's going to be worse. Oh, no, they didn't tell me any of that. I said, and this was somebody who has a lot of money. And I said, well, they're, they're look, you can tell they're all looking for this really wealthy candidates to make money off of. I don't think Trump's going to run again. Because he's got a lot of legal problems. Look, Matt Gates. You know, we're going to hear a little bit more about Matt Gates next week and his and his friend and the teenagers. So, what's going to happen there? Trump's already trying to distance himself from him. By Trump the way, had- did you have any clues to Matt Gates's uh, behavior when you were in the House serving with him? No, you know, people like Matt Gates who was just so vile from day one when he came in. You know, that is just not a circle I ever traveled in. You know, I mean, he's such a you know, just such an obnoxious, you know, suck up to Trump. And isn't it the perfect message now that, that these suck ups to Trump, even when you look at, see, you guys all know CPAC, Conservative Political Action Committee. Yes. Okay, that is the Trumpiest of places now. When they had that event this year, only 55% of the people wanted Trump to be their nominee, 55% of the family gathering. So I think the House Republicans are over. You know, because they're just so many of these people have never had real races. Like when they would talk to me, they're like, oh, my God, you mean you work all the August recess? You go to things, you do this. Oh, I can't imagine having, you know, because they all they had to do is vote a few ways. Right. And they won their primaries and life was easy. So they're just scared Trump's going to come in and upset the apple cart. And, you know, and for some of these people like a Jim Jordan, you know, he can't find a $174,000 job in the private sector. You know, I don't even know if he could be a wrestling coach anymore. They're just scared. And so they're doing weak things. But Trump is losing ground even among Republicans. 
in the broader sense. Uh, So we know a lot of people want Trump to endorse them. How many candidates in 2022 do you think are going to ask Liz Cheney to come campaign for them? Well, that's, yeah, I mean, can can she raise money? Probably in, in swing districts, that might be helpful. But again, yeah, the problem for swing districts is you have to run your own race because you don't want any polarization in your race. You're trying to be yourself. And that's certainly last year with the women and minority candidates who won and picked up those swing districts. We told them, stay away from Trump. Don't go to rallies. Just stay out of those fights. You don't want to be part of the internecine fights. But that's the problem of Trump. He creates an inner Nicene fight that there's no way of getting out of. When people go home, all of them are going to be asked, how did you vote on Liz Cheney? And even if a majority of the people in your district supported, you know, getting rid of Liz, there's going to be a lot of people. I mean, I know already people in Virginia who are mad at Virginia Republicans for how they voted on that. And they're like, OK, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. I'm not going to do that. So when you're in a swing district, you can't afford to lose anybody. So just the existence of Trump in there with a civil war is, you know, a civil war among 47, you know, between 47 percent means both sides lose. So it becomes that's that's why he is a no win solution for the future, because he hurts people across the party, um, because I mean, Actually, a lot of the people in really red districts don't care about being in the majority, so they don't care. So, yeah, I guess they're not hurt anyway. What what about Liz Cheney's race? Because Donald Trump won uh, Wyoming, I think, by a a larger percentage than Mm -hmm. any other state in the country. I mean, how sure are you that Liz Cheney is going to be reelected there? Well, I know she'll certainly have a more difficult race than she had. But she but here's the here's the problem that it presents for Republicans. The leading opponent in her in the Republican primary says the race was a fraud and that Biden isn't president. And he doesn't believe that January January 6th was, you know, that what those weren't Trump supporters. So he is just over the moon on the big lie. So how many Republicans want to go in and be a, now Matt Gates might, if he's not somewhere else, uh, but, you know, does the leadership want to go in and stand with somebody like that? Now they have stood with Marjorie Green. I think Marjorie Green, Matt Gates. He's real, you know, the, the guy this week who said that January 6th was just like having tourists in. That is a bad face for all parts of the party. And our well, party, but the question is, does the leadership want to take on Donald Trump, who is going to endorse Liz Cheney's opponent in the primary? Well, and, that's, and, and, you know, I, I think what Kevin's trying to do is keeping Trump out of as many as possible. I think if he if Trump goes into real red districts, they might not care. So, yeah, they're fine with Wyoming because they think they win either way. But they don't want them going into the California seats because any of those, you know, if, if you take out Young Kim or David Valadeo or any of those moderates, Kevin's going to lose the seat. If you try and take out Jamie Herrera Butler in Washington, you're going to lose the seat. Look, when they took out, when Trump went after Mark Sanford, he came to our caucus, oh, you know, dancing on Mark Sanford's grave. Well, we, they lost the seat in 2018 in South Carolina in a Republican seat because people said, you know, even in a Trumpy area, Trump doesn't always prevail in these cases. You know, Madison Cawthorn, that crazy kid, you know, in North Carolina, that was Mark Meadows seat. Mark Meadows basically in the White House endorsed somebody else. And this Trump crazy stuff gets so out of hand that even Trump and his own people can't control it. So that's why I think you're better off as a Republican saying, I'm going to be my own person. I'm going to stay on my own ground. I'm going to deal with these people, but I'm going to put together a coalition, which if you're somebody who's toiled in the vineyards and worked in Republican politics, you can put together a coalition. And I do think Liz will be able to put together that coalition and win. But Barbara, you say Trump is losing ground within the party. The NRCC does polling. If if he really was losing the kind of ground you're talking about, that would be reflected in what, you know, uh, Kevin McCarthy is seeing presumably every day in polling numbers. How can you explain the stance they're taking if, in fact, you're right and that Trump is losing support? Well, their own polling reportedly is showing that in those swing districts, Trump is underwater. 
then why is Kevin McCarthy doing what he's doing and standing behind Donald Trump? Their only explanation is, well, the polls showed us doing a lot worse in 2020. So they think there's this mystery secret sauce that if Trump's helping, then then you get these people who turn out who don't show up in polls. So I don't know why they're doing polls if they don't believe their own polls, but their own polls show that he is um, losing ground. I think you know, the national, if he's at 32% in national polls, that means he's not doing great in California. You know, and, and, that, and the recall is falling apart there. So you've got to get back to issues and doing things like that, not doing all this. How do you how do you keep the people that Trump actually did bring in to the party, uh, including, you know, some African-Americans, people of color, Hispanics, Latinos? You know, how do you keep those and move away from the Trumpian autocratic, uh, you know, big lie stuff? Well, I, I think you've got to find other people who can appeal on those issues. I mean, you know, Tim Scott is working on criminal justice reform. He's a great national voice on a lot of these issues. But we also have to find, look at the mayor of Miami, Cuban-American, is he is a great future face of the party. And he's he's actually working to bring businesses to Miami. He's being real tech friendly, which I, I work in the tech areas, disclosure, but I think that's smart. I think it's kind of dopey to attack the jobs of the future. So you find, you know, usually when you're in the minority, you don't hang yourself with somebody who just lost the election. I mean, you know, back when Hoover lost in 1932, Republicans didn't say, hey, let's keep hanging out with him. You know, I mean, Trump <laughs> lost the House, the Senate and the White House. It, it is it is a mystery. So the Senate isn't doing that. But they're all. But yes. Trump did appeal to some working class people who weren't in the party that we've been able to bring in, but he drove out professionals, suburban women and men. And the challenge, I think, to the party, I mean, a lot of the people in the party, like Jim Banks, who runs the study committee, he's we're a working class party now. I said, well, I can't, my family was working class. I came from working class roots, but now we're professionals. Why can't we have both? Because most family, you know, two generations away from being working class. So why make this divide and divide people? The Republican Party that I've been part of was to embrace opportunity and, you know, make today's working class tomorrow's professional class or today's working class have more opportunities and more income. We should be, you know, we shouldn't be trying to do the Trump divide because, you know, more people are going to college. The rural areas are shrinking, not growing. So you're hitching your wagon and we're doing, Republicans are doing horribly with young people. So two years from now, there's going to be more young people. Two years from now, you know, the older vote that Trump had is dying. You know, the people who aren't getting their vaccines might die. You know, those are disproportionately Republicans because Trump scared them off of it. So I, I do think there's a way to have a future party that appeals to them on issues and inclusion, but doesn't drive away a whole nother part of the electorate that used to be Republicans and want to be. They want to be. I can tell you people are calling me to say, hey, in Virginia, we want to support Glenn Youngkin. We want to support, you know, we see this good attorney general candidate. Can you Tell us about them. So, oh, you know, and they understand, yes, you have to bring together a coalition. So they aren't asking for date. You know, a lot of Republicans aren't asking for daily renouncement of things. Just don't embrace the big lie and don't be part of that, particularly in the states. There's no reason you need to get involved in it. Have you been talking to Liz Cheney throughout this period at all? Have you talked to her about, you know, this extraordinary decision that she made to break uh, with her leadership uh, set her on this on this path uh, with a lot of uncertainty. Do you have a sense of what that has been like for her personally and how she talks about this when she's not in front of a microphone? Yeah, well, I, I think it's it's very similar. Um, you know, when we when she had her first vote in February, you know, she was on a fundraiser Zoom call with a lot of old friends, mostly women, um, who and supporters. And she was very at peace then. She said, I'm going to call for a vote. You know, some of these guys may not want to vote because I'm going to win at that point. And I think she made her mark January 6th with the dividing line. So she was very at peace at no matter what happened. Like, 
like I said, it was like, she understands, you know, you can't give up your soul for, for this in that there are other ways to lead. And there are other ways to lead, you know, even if you're, you're not in Congress, obviously. So, you know, I think that's really, you know, I think the woman has met the moment. You know, they always say the man meets the moment. I think the mm-hmm. woman has met the moment here and she will be on the right side of history. So how long is that before that's apparent? Um, it, this will burn out, but I'm hoping we can build up something better, not to borrow from Biden, but build up a better Republican Party sooner rather than later, because I think that's what's good for the country and for the policies that I've fought for, that I know Liz has fought for. I don't want to be a Democrat. I, you know, I grew up a Democrat. I left that party. I don't, you know, they left me and I moved on. I don't want the Republican Party. And you don't and you don't want to start a new party (laughs) when she was expelled from leadership. She said in front of reporters, I don't have the right exact quote in front of me, but she's basically said, I want to lead this party back to uh, where it where it was. And and she wants to be part of making sure Trump is never there. She didn't say part of. She said, I am going to do this. And um, well, I'm I think happy it did to join up with whatever effort that she's doing on that front. <laughs> but it does raise the question of what she how she really sees her role and whether part of that is going to be a a, a, a presidential run. Um, do you think she's going to do you think she's thinking about running for president? And uh, would you support her? Well, I'm, I'm supporting her in, a, in what, you know, in, in a lot of different efforts. I think what she's doing now is to really focus on that big lie and get it because it's distressing when you hear people who you know and respect, you know, people in the public who say, well, yeah, but what about Georgia and those votes? Because they've heard those lies repeated now for six months. So you have good, decent people who haven't, you know, looked at the facts, but just hear that from leaders who believe that. So I think being active on getting those things clarified is, is going to be important. But I, I think there's going to have to be some Trumpy losses before that's apparent. Nothing nothing helps dissipate a movement uh, than loss. And so Trump has lost. You know, you notice he always goes after everybody as you're a loser, you're a loser. It's like, dude, you are the Prince of Mar-a-Lago. You are down there talking to the mirror and you think you're still president. You're not. So no matter what influence you have, you are never going to be back in the White House. He wanted, I mean, I honestly think he did not care about Republicans winning those Georgia seats. He was mad he lost. So he kind of, he'd rather have more people lose with him. So now it's just, they, I mean, and I heard it directly from some of the people around him, you know, we're going to burn it down. We're going to burn it down. They did this to us. We're going to burn it. And so I think that is part of what they're doing. Like, if you're not with us, we're, we're out you know, exacting vengeance. And that's a losing strategy for everybody. That's, I'm focusing on people who I think are good and who can win. I'm not trying to really burn down anybody. I just want to focus on a better party. Barbara, uh, Danny asked you what this has been like personally for Liz Cheney. I want to ask you what it's been like personally for you, because a lot of people you were very close to and worked with over the years, Dave Bossie, Joe DeGeneva, Victoria Tunsing, they've all stuck with Trump. They have stayed with him, people that you were very close to. What's it like when you talk to, you know, your your former associates uh, about all this? And, you know, what's been the reaction, you know, from your supporters over the years in the district? Uh, Well, uh, my close friends like that that you mentioned, we agree to disagree on this. So we largely don't talk about it. Really? You You get together and you don't talk about Donald Trump? Well, (laughs) unfortunately, because of COVID, getting together hasn't been so much of an option. So that's been, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. The kind of things that I was reaching out and talking to them about was I wasn't trying to change their minds on those things because I know where they are. But I was like, please stay out of the White House and don't get COVID. Yes, some of those people that you mentioned did. So I was largely worried about their personal health. And then certainly when the post-election big lie started, Dave Bossi got COVID. And uh, so he was spared uh, probably what a lot of the other aggravation that others are going through because they stayed on in that. He got sick and had to, you know, bow out, which was probably, I thought that was a real blessing for him. So I was happy for him that he, you know, got off the Trump 
you know, express there to nowhere. No, and I worry about them too. I worry about, it's like, you know, don't be near Steve Bannon. Don't be near these people who are, are, are people who are I mean, very vi- vi- Joe and Victoria were standing there during that crazy Giuliani press conference with Sidney Powell spouting the whole Dominion craziness. I mean, you know, when you watch that, you know, what are you, is your head exploding? Well, and you know, my, my, my friends, they're my friends and just like your family are your family and the people you mentioned are like family to me. So they're still my friends and I, we haven't really had that discussion uh, largely because of COVID. My focus on them has mostly been their personal health and welfare. And I was relieved when Trump lost in November because I thought that would move it away. I just, I dread for them and others dragging this out longer because I, I think it's very both personally unhealthy for them, but obviously for the country. So yeah, no, that's been hard. I know, I know that's been hard for Liz because but that's why I've been out speaking on her behalf and speaking out on it. There's nothing in it for me. I, I'm not running for office again. I'm, I'm just, I just, I just know it's lonely when you're in there doing the right thing. And I know I always appreciated people standing up, you know, for something that might be unpopular on your side. But I just think this is such a dividing line and the big lie is so destructive to the body politic. But in terms of Trump passing, what I have said, and I, I mean, I've said this over the past few years, and I still think it's true. Trump is like a political kidney stone or gallstone going through the body politic, going through our party. It is very painful, but it is not deadly. When people would say our democracy is fragile, he almost upended it in everything. I think our democracy is still very strong. I want our party to be stronger, but I think our country is strong. I think the American people, even though I think they still are more centrist, center-right, they rejected Donald Trump because of his obnoxious, toxic personality that even if they agreed with his policies, they couldn't go with him. Down ballot, they voted for a lot of our guys. We held the statehouse in Georgia and Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, because they like our ideas. And some of them even voted for Trump, even though they didn't like him. Now that kidney stone, gallstone, painful <laughs> process is going through and we will be healthier when it fully passes. OK, well, on that uh, graphic metaphorical note, Trump <laughs> as a kidney stone, uh, Barbara Comstock, I want to thank you uh, for joining us. And we will definitely want to uh, stay in touch as um, this drama plays out. Thank you. Good to be with you.